The Philosophy of Spiritual Activity by Rudolf Steiner Read by Owen Hunt Preface to the Revised Edition, 1918 Everything discussed in this book centers around two problems which are fundamental to the human soul life. One of these problems concerns the possibility of attaining such insight into human nature that knowledge of man can become the foundation of all human knowledge and experience of life. We often feel that our experiences and the results of scientific investigations are not self-supporting. Further experiences or discoveries may shake our certitude. The other problem is, has man any right to ascribe freedom to his will, or is freedom of will an illusion arising out of his inability to recognize the threads of necessity on which his will depends, just like a process in nature? This question is not artificially created. In a certain disposition, it arises quite spontaneously in the human soul, and one feels that the soul lacks in stature if it has not at some time faced in deep seriousness the question of free will or its necessity. In this book, the intention is to show that the inner experiences caused by the second problem depend upon what attitude man is able to take toward the first problem. The attempt will be made to show that it is possible to attain such an insight into man's nature that this can support all the rest of his knowledge, and further, that this insight completely justifies the concept of freedom of will, provided only that the first region of the soul is discovered where free will can unfold. This insight in relation to the two problems is such that, once attained, it can become a living content of man's soul life. A theoretical answer will not be given which, once acquired, is merely carried about as a conviction retained by memory. For the whole manner of thinking on which this book is based, such an answer would be no answer. Such a finished, limited answer will not be given, but a region of experiences within the human soul will be pointed to, where, through the soul's own inner activity, living answers to the questions to be found ever anew and at every moment when man needs them. Once the region of soul is discovered where these questions unfold, a real insight into this region provides man with what he needs for the solution of these two problems of life, so that, with what he has then attained, he can penetrate further into the breadth and depth of life's riddles as need or destiny leads him. It will be seen that a knowledge has here been outlined which proves its justification and validity, not only through its own existence, but also through the relationship it has with the entire soul life of man. These were my thoughts about the content of this book when I wrote it 25 years ago. Today, again I must write similarly if I am to characterize the aim of this book. In the first edition, I limited myself to saying no more than was the strictest sense connected with the two fundamental problems described above. If anyone should be surprised at not finding in this book as yet any reference to that region of the world or spiritual experience described in my later writings, then he must consider that at that time it was not my purpose to describe results of spiritual research, but first to lay the foundation on which such results can rest. This philosophy of freedom 
does not contain any special results of this kind, any more than it contains special results of the natural sciences. But what it contains cannot, in my view, be dispensed with by anyone who strives for certainty in such knowledge. What I have said in this book can also be acceptable to many who, for reasons of their own, will have nothing to do with the results of my spiritual scientific research. But one who can regard these results of spiritual scientific research as something to which he is drawn will recognize as important what is attempted here. It is this, to prove that an open-minded consideration of just the two problems I have indicated, problems which are fundamental to all knowledge, leads to recognition of the fact that man is living within the reality of a spiritual world. In this book, the attempt is made to justify knowledge of the realm of spirit before entering upon spiritual experience. And this justification is undertaken in such a way that, for anyone able and willing to enter into the discussion, there is no need, in order to accept what is said here, to cast furtive glances at the experiences which my later writings have shown to be relevant. Thus, it seems to me that, on the one hand, this book occupies a position completely independent of my writings on actual spiritual scientific matters, and yet, on the other hand, it is also most intimately connected with them. All this has caused me now, after 25 years, to republish the content of this book practically unaltered in all essentials. I have, however, made additions of some length to several chapters. The misunderstandings of my argument which have come to my attention seemed to make these detailed extensions necessary. Alterations have been made only where I had said a quarter of a century ago appeared to me to be clumsily expressed. Only ill will could find in these changes occasion to suggest that I have changed my fundamental conviction. The book has been out of print for many years. Nevertheless, and in spite of the fact, apparent from what I have just said, that to me it seems that today must be similarly expressed what I did express 25 years ago about the problems I have characterized. I hesitated a long time about the completion of this revised edition. Again and again I have asked myself whether at this point or that, I ought not to define my position toward the numerous philosophical views which have been put forward since the publication of the first edition. Yet the heavy demands on my time in recent years, due to purely spiritual scientific research, prevented me doing as I might have wished. Also, a survey, as thorough as possible, of the philosophical literature of the present day has convinced me that such a critical discussion, tempting though it would be in itself, has no place in the context of what this book has to say. All that, from the point of view of the philosophy of spiritual activity, it seemed to me necessary to say about recent philosophical tendencies may be found in the second volume of my Riddles of Philosophy. April 1918, Rudolf Steiner Chapter 1. The Conscious Human Deed Is man in his thinking and acting a spiritually free being, or is he compelled by the iron necessity of natural law? Few questions have been debated more than this one. The concept of the freedom of the human will has found enthusiastic supporters and stubborn opponents in plenty. 
There are those who, in moral fervor, declare it to be sheer stupidity to deny so evident a fact as freedom. Opposed to them are others who regard as utterly naive the belief that the uniformity of natural law is interrupted in the sphere of human action and thinking. One and the same thing is here declared as often to be the most precious possession of humanity, as it is said to be its most fatal illusion. Infinite subtlety has been devoted to explaining how human freedom is compatible with the working of nature, to which, after all, man belongs. No less pains have been taken to make comprehensible how a delusion like this could have arisen. That here we are dealing with one of the most important questions of life, religion, conduct, and science is felt by everyone whose character is not totally devoid of depth. And indeed, it belongs to the sad signs of the superficiality of present-day thinking that a book which attempts to develop a, quote, new faith, unquote, out of the results of the latest scientific discoveries contains, on this question, nothing but the words, quote, There is no need here to go into the question of the freedom of the human will. The supposed indifferent freedom of choice has always been recognized as an empty illusion by every philosophy worthy of the name. The moral valuation of human conduct and character remains untouched by this question. End quote. I do not quote this passage because I consider that the book in which it appears has any special importance, but because it seems to me to express the only view which most of our thinking contemporaries are able to reach concerning this question. Everyone who claims to have advanced beyond an elementary education seems nowadays to know that freedom cannot consist in choosing at one's pleasure one or the other of two possible courses of action. It is maintained that there is always a quite definite reason why, out of several possible actions, we carry out a particular one. This seems obvious. Nevertheless, up to now, the main attacks by those who oppose freedom are directed only against the freedom of choice. Herbert Spencer, who has views which are rapidly gaining ground, says that, quote, everyone is able to desire or not to desire, as he pleases, which is the essential principle in the dogma of free will, is negated by the analysis of consciousness as well as by the contents of the preceding chapter. End quote. Others, too, start from the same point of view in combating the concept of free will. The germs of all that is relevant in these arguments are to be found as early as Spinoza. All that he brought forward in clear and simple language against the idea of freedom has since been repeated times without number, but usually veiled in the most complicated theoretical doctrines so that it is difficult to recognize the straightforward train of thought on which all depends. Spinoza writes a letter of October or November 1674. Quote, I call something free which exists and acts from the pure necessity of its nature, and I call that compelled the existence and action of which are exactly and fixedly determined by something else. The existence of God, for example, though necessary, is free because he exists only through the necessity of his nature. Similarly, God knows himself and all else in freedom, 
because it follows solely from the necessity of his nature that he knows all. You see, therefore, that I regard freedom as consisting, not in free decision, but in free necessity. But let us come down to created things which are all determined by external causes to exist and to act in a fixed and definite manner. To recognize this more clearly, let us imagine a perfectly simple case. A stone, for example, receives from an eternal cause acting upon it a certain quantity of motion, by which it necessarily continues to move after the impact of the external cause has ceased. The continued motion of the stone is a compelled one, not a necessary one, because it has to be defined by the thrust of the external cause. What is true here for the stone is true also for every other particular thing, however complicated and many-sided it may be, namely, that each thing is necessarily determined by external causes to exist and to act in a fixed and definite manner. Now, please, suppose that during its motion the stone thinks and knows that it is striving to the best of its ability to continue in motion. This stone, which is conscious only of its striving and is by no means indifferent, will believe that it is absolutely free and that it continues in motion for no other reason than its own will to continue. But this is that human freedom which everybody claims to possess and which consists in nothing but this, that men are conscious of their desires, but do not know the causes by which they are determined. Thus the child believes that he is free when he desires milk, the angry boy that he is free in his desire for vengeance, and the timid his desire for flight. Again, the drunken man believes that he says of his own free decision what, sober again, he would fain have left unsaid. And as this prejudice is innate in all men, it is not easy to free oneself from it. For although experience teaches us often that man, least of all, can temper his desires and that, moved by conflicting passions, he sees the better and pursues the worse, yet he considers himself free simply because there are some things which he desires less strongly and many desires which can easily be inhibited through the recollection of something else which is often remembered. End quote. Because here we are dealing with a clear and definitely expressed view, it is also easy to discover the fundamental error in it. As necessarily as a stone continues a definite movement after being put in motion, as necessarily as a stone continues a definite movement after being put in motion, just as necessarily is a man supposed to carry out an action when urged thereto by any reason. It is only because man is conscious of his action that he regards himself as its free originator. But in doing so, he overlooks the fact that he is driven to it by a cause which he has to obey unconditionally. The error in this train of thought is soon found. Spinoza, and all who think like him, overlook the fact that man not only is conscious of his action, but may also become conscious of the causes which guide him. No one will deny that when the child desires milk, he is unfree, as is also the drunken man when he says things he later regrets. Neither knows anything of the causes working in the depths of their organisms, which exercise irresistible power over them. 
But is it justifiable to lump together actions of this kind with those in which a man is conscious, not only of his actions, but also of the reasons which cause him to act? Are the actions of men really all one of a kind? Should the deed of a soldier on the field of battle, of the research scientists in his laboratory, of the statesmen in complicated diplomatic negotiations, be placed scientifically on the same level with that of the child when he desires milk? It is indeed true that it is best to attempt the solution of a problem where the conditions are simplest. But inability to differentiate has caused endless confusion before now. There is, after all, a profound difference between whether I know why I do something or whether I do not. At first sight, this seems a self-evident truth. And yet, those who oppose freedom never ask whether a motive which I recognize and see through compels me in the same sense as does the organic process in the child that causes him to cry for milk. Edward von Hartmann maintains that the human will depends on two main factors, the motive and the character. If one regards all men as alike, or at any rate the differences between them as negligible, then their will appears as determined from without, namely, by the circumstances which come to meet them. But if one takes into consideration that men let a representation become a motive for their deeds only if their character is such that the particular representation arouses a desire in them, then man appears as determined from within and not from without. Now, because a representation pressing in on him from without must first, in accordance with his character, be adopted as a motive, Man believes himself to be free, that is, independent of external motives. The truth, however, according to Edward von Hartmann, is that, quote, Even though we ourselves first turn a representation into a motive, we do so not arbitrarily, but according to the necessity of our characterological disposition, that is, we are anything but free, end quote. Here again, the difference between motives which I allow to influence me only after I have permeated them with my consciousness, and those which I follow without having any clear knowledge of, is disregarded. And this leads directly to the standpoint from which the facts will be considered here. Is it at all permissible to consider by itself the question of the freedom of our will? And if not, With what other question must it necessarily be connected? If there is a difference between a conscious motive of my action and an unconscious impulse, then the conscious motive will result in an action which must be judged differently from one that springs from blind urge. The first question must therefore concern this difference, and upon the answer will depend how we are to deal with the question of freedom as such. What does it mean to know the reason for one's action? This question has been too little considered because, unfortunately, the tendency has always been to tear into two parts what is an inseparable whole. Man. We distinguish the knower from the doer, and the one who really matters is lost sight of. The man who acts because he knows. 
It is said, man is free when his reason has the upper hand, not his animal cravings. Or else, freedom means to be able to determine one's life and action in accordance with purposes and decisions. Nothing is achieved by assertions of this kind, for the question is just whether reason, purposes, and decisions exercise compulsion over a man in the same way as do his animal cravings. If, without my doing, a reasonable decision emerges in me with just the same necessity as hunger and thirst, then I must needs obey it, and my freedom is an illusion. Another phrase is, To be free means not that one is able to will what one wants, but that one is able to do what one wants. This thought has been expressed with great clearness by the poet-philosopher Robert Hammerling. Quote, Man can indeed do what he wants, but he cannot will what he wants, because his will is determined by motives. He cannot will what he wants? Let us consider these words more closely. Have they any sense? Should freedom of will consist in being able to will something without reason, without a motive? But what does it mean to will something other than to have a reason to do or to strive for this rather than that? To will something without a reason, without a motive, would mean to will something without willing it. The concept of will is inseparable from that of motive. Without a motive to determine it, the will is an empty ability. Only through the motive does it become active and real. It is, therefore, quite correct that human will is not free, inasmuch as its direction is always determined by that motive which is the strongest. But, on the other hand, it must be admitted that in contrast with this unfreedom, it is absurd to speak of a thinkable freedom of the will which would end up in being able to will what one does not will. But, on the other hand, it must be admitted that in contrast with this unfreedom, it is absurd to speak of a thinkable freedom of the will, which would end up in being able to will what one does not will. End quote. Here again, only motives in general are discussed, without regard for the difference between unconscious and conscious motives. If a motive affects me and I am compelled to act on it because it proves to be the strongest of its kind, then the thought of freedom ceases to have any meaning. Should it matter to me whether I can do a thing or not, if I am forced by the motive to do it? The immediate question is not whether I can or cannot do a thing when a motive has influenced me, but whether only such motives exist as affect me with compelling necessity. If I have to will something, then I may well be absolutely indifferent as to whether I can also do it. And if, through my character, or through circumstances prevailing in my environment, a motive is pressed upon me which, to my thinking, is unreasonable, then I should even have to be glad if I could not do what I will. The question is not whether I can carry out a decision once made but how the decision arises within me. What distinguishes man from all other organic beings is his rational thinking. Actions he has in common with other organisms. Nothing is gained by seeking analogies in the animal world to clarify the concept of freedom of action of human beings. Modern natural science loves such analogies. 
When scientists have succeeded in finding among animals something similar to human behavior, they believe they have touched upon the most important question of the science of man. To what misunderstandings this view leads is seen, for example, in a book by P. Ray, where the following remark on freedom appears. Quote, It is easy to explain why the movement of a stone seems to us necessary, while the will impulse of a donkey does not. The causes which set the stone in motion are external and visible, while the causes which induce in the donkey impulses of will are internal and invisible. That is, between us and the place where they are active, there is the skull of the donkey. The dependence on a cause is not seen, and the conclusion, therefore, is drawn that no dependence is present. It is explained that the will is, indeed, the cause of the donkey's turning around, but that it is itself unconditioned. It is an absolute beginning. End quote. Here again, human actions in which man is conscious of the reasons why he acts are simply ignored. For Ray declares, quote, Between us and the place where the causes are active, there is the skull of the donkey. End quote. From these words, it can be seen that Ray had no notion that there are actions, not indeed of the donkey, but of human beings, in which between us and the deed lies the motive that has become conscious. That Ray does not see this, he shows again later when he says, quote, We do not perceive the causes by which our will is determined. Hence, we believe that our will is not causally determined at all. End quote. But enough of examples which show that many oppose freedom without knowing in the least what freedom is. That an action cannot be free, of which the doer does not know why he carries it out, is obvious. But what about an action for which we know the reason? This leads us to the question, what is the origin and significance of thinking? For without knowledge of the thinking activity of the soul, it is impossible to form a concept of what it means to know something, and therefore also of what it means to know the reason for an action. When we realize what thinking in general means, then it will also be easy to become clear about the role that thinking plays in human action. As Hegel rightly says, quote, It is thinking that turns the soul, with which the animals are also endowed, into spirit. End quote. And this is why thinking gives to human action its characteristic stamp. It is not maintained that all our action springs only from the sober deliberations of our reason. Far be it from me to consider human in the highest sense only those actions which result from abstract judgments. But as soon as our conduct rises above the sphere of the satisfaction of purely animal desires, our motives are always permeated by thoughts. Love, pity, and patriotism are motivating forces for deeds which cannot be analyzed away into cold concepts of the intellect. It is said that here the heart and the mood of soul hold sway. No doubt. But the heart and the mood of the soul do not create the motives. They presuppose them and let them enter. Pity enters my heart when the representation of a person who arouses pity appears in my consciousness. The way to the heart is through the head, 
Love is no exception. Whenever it is not merely the expression of bare sexual instinct, it depends on the representation we form of the loved one. And the more idealistic these representations are, just so much the more blessed is our love. Here too, thought is the father of feeling. It is said, love makes us blind to the failings of the loved one. But this also holds good the other way around. And it can be said, love opens the eyes just for the good qualities of the loved one. Many pass by these good qualities without noticing them. One, however, sees them, and just because he does, love awakens in his soul. He has done nothing other than form a representation of something, of which hundreds have none. They have no love because they lack the representation. From whatever point we regard the subject, it becomes even clearer that the question of the nature of human action presupposes that of the origin of thinking. I shall therefore turn to this question next. Chapter 2. The Fundamental Urge for Knowledge Two souls, alas, are dwelling in my breast, and each is fain to leave its brother. The one, fast clinging to the world, adheres with clutching organs in love's sturdy lust. The other strongly lifts itself from dust to yonder high ancestral plains. Faust, 1, Section 2 In these words, Goethe expresses a characteristic feature belonging to the deepest foundation of human nature. Man is not a uniformly organized being. He always demands more than the world gives him of its own accord. Nature has endowed us with needs. Among them are some that are left to our own initiative to satisfy. Abundant are the gifts bestowed upon us, but still more abundant are our desires. We seem born to be dissatisfied. Our thirst for knowledge is but a special instance of this dissatisfaction. If we look twice at a tree, and the first time see its branches motionless, the second time in movement, we do not remain satisfied with this observation. Why does the tree appear to us now motionless, now in movement? Thus we ask. Every glance at nature evokes in us a number of questions. Every phenomenon we meet sets us up a problem. Every experience contains a riddle. We see emerging from the egg a creature like the mother animal. We ask the reason for this likeness. We notice that living beings grow and develop to a certain degree of perfection, and we investigate the conditions for this experience. Nowhere are we satisfied with what nature spreads before our senses. Everywhere we seek what we call explanation of the facts. The something more which we seek in things, over and above what is given us directly in them, divides our whole being into two aspects. We become conscious of our contrast to the world. We confront the world as independent beings. The universe appears to us to have two opposite poles, I and world. We erect this barrier between ourselves and the world as soon as consciousness first dawns in us, but we never cease to feel that, in spite of all, we belong to the world, 
that there is a bond of union between it and us, that we are not beings outside, but within the universe. This feeling makes us strive to bridge over the contrast. And in this bridging, the whole spiritual striving of mankind ultimately consists. The history of man's spiritual life is an incessant search for unity between us and the world. Religion, art, and science all have this same aim. In the revelation God grants him, the religious believer seeks the solution of the problems in the world, which his eye, dissatisfied with the world of mere phenomena, sets him. The artist seeks to imprint into matter the ideas of his eye in order to reconcile with the world outside what lives within him. He, too, feels dissatisfied with the world as it appears to him and seeks to embody into the world of mere phenomena that something more which his eye, reaching out beyond it, contains. The thinker seeks the laws of phenomena and strives to penetrate with thinking what he experiences by observing. Only when we have made the world content into our thought content do we again find the unity from which we separated ourselves. We shall see later that this goal will be reached only when the task of the scientific investigator is understood at a much deeper level than is usually the case. The whole situation I have described here presents itself to us on the stage of history in the contrast between a unified view of the world or monism and the theory of two worlds or dualism. Dualism pays attention only to the separation between I and world brought about by man's consciousness. All its efforts consist in a vain struggle to reconcile these opposites, which it calls spirit and matter, subject and object, or thinking and phenomenon. The dualist feels that there must be a bridge between the two worlds, but he is unable to find it. In as far as man is aware of himself as I, he cannot think but of his I as belonging to spirit. And in contrasting this I with the world, he cannot do otherwise than reckon the perceptions given to the senses, the realm of matter, as belonging to the world. In doing so, man places himself within the contrast of spirit and matter. He must do so all the more because his own body belongs to the material world. Thus, the I belongs to the realm of spirit as part of it. The material things and events which are perceived by the senses belong to the world. All the problems connected with spirit and matter, man finds again in the fundamental riddle of his own nature. Monism pays attention only to the unity and tries either to deny or to efface the contrasts, which are there nevertheless. Neither of these two views is satisfactory, for they do not do justice to the facts. Dualism sees spirit, I, and matter, world, as two fundamentally different entities and cannot, therefore, understand how they can interact upon each other. How should spirit know what goes on in matter if the essential nature of matter is quite alien to spirit? And how, in these circumstances, should spirit be able to act upon matter in order to transform its intentions into actions? The most clever and the most absurd hypotheses have been put forward to solve these problems. But, so far, monism has fared 
know better. Up to now, it has tried to justify itself in three different ways. Either it denies spirit and becomes materialism, or it denies matter and seeks its salvation in spiritualism, or it maintains that since, even in the simplest entities in the world, spirit and matter are indivisibly bound together, there is no need for surprise if these two kinds of existence are both present in the human being, for they are never found apart. Materialism can never arrive at a satisfactory explanation of the world, for every attempt at an explanation must of necessity begin with man's forming thoughts about the phenomena of the world. Materialism, therefore, takes its start from thoughts about matter or material processes. In doing so, it straightway confronts two different kinds of facts, namely, the material world and the thoughts about it. The materialist tries to understand thoughts by regarding them as a purely material process. He believes that thinking takes place in the brain much in the same way that digestion takes place in the animal organs. Just as he ascribes to matter mechanical and organic effects, so he also attributes to matter, in certain circumstances, the ability to think. He forgets that in doing this, he has merely shifted the problem to another place. Instead of to himself, he ascribes to matter the ability to think. And thus, he is back again at his starting point. How does matter come to reflect about its own nature? Why is it not simply satisfied with itself and with its own existence? The materialist has turned his attention away from the definite subject, from our own I, and has arrived at a vague, indefinite image. And here again, the same problem comes to meet him. The materialistic view is unable to solve the problem. It only transfers it to another place. How does the matter stand with the spiritualistic view? The extreme spiritualist denies to matter its independent existence and regards it merely as product of spirit. But when he tries to apply this view of the world to the solution of the riddle of his own human nature, he finds himself in a corner. Confronting the I, which can be placed on the side of spirit, there stands, without any mediation, the physical world. No spiritual approach to it seems possible. It has to be perceived and experienced by the I, by means of material processes. Such material processes the I does not find in itself if it regards its own nature as having only spiritual validity. The physical world is never found in what it works out spiritually. It seems as if the I would have to admit that the world would remain closed to it if it did not establish a non-spiritual relation to the world. Similarly, when we come to be active, we have to translate our intentions into realities with the help of material substances and forces. In other words, we are dependent upon the outer world. The most extreme spiritualist, or rather the thinker who, through absolute idealism, appears as an extreme spiritualist, is Johann Gottlieb Fichte. He attempts to derive the whole edifice of the world from the eye. What he has actually accomplished is a magnificent thought picture of the world without any content of experience. As little as it is possible for the materialist to argue the spirit away, 
just as little is it possible for the idealist to argue away the outer world of matter. The first thing man perceives when he asks to gain knowledge of his I is the activity of this I in the conceptual elaboration of the world of ideas. This is the reason why someone who follows a worldview which inclines towards spiritualism may feel tempted, when looking at his own human nature, to acknowledge nothing of spirit except his own world of ideas. In this way, spiritualism becomes one-sided idealism. He does not reach the point of seeking through the world of ideas a spiritual world. In the world of his ideas, he sees the spiritual world itself. As a result of this, he is driven to remain with his worldview as if chained within the activity of his I. The view of Frederick Albert Lang is a curious variety of idealism put forward by him in his widely read History of Materialism. He suggests that the materialists are quite right in declaring all phenomena, including our thinking, to be the product of purely material processes. Only, in turn, matter and its processes are themselves the product of our thinking. Quote, The senses give us the effects of things, not true copies, much less the things themselves. To these mere effects belong the senses themselves, as well as the brain and the molecular vibrations which are thought to go on there. End quote. That is, our thinking is produced by the material processes, and these by the thinking of the I. Lang's philosophy, in other words, is nothing but the story, applied to concepts, of the ingenious Baron Munchausen, who holds himself up in the air by his own pigtail. The third form of monism is the one which sees the two entities, matter and spirit, already united in the simplest being the atom. But nothing is gained by this either, for here again the question, which really originates in our consciousness, is transferred to another place. How does the simple being come to manifest itself in two different ways if it is an indivisible unity? To all these viewpoints, it must be objected that it is first and foremost in our own consciousness that we meet the basic and original contrast. It is we who detach ourselves from the bosom of nature and contrast ourselves as I with the world. Goethe has given a classic expression to this in his essay on nature, although at first glance his manner may be considered quite unscientific. Quote, We live in the midst of her, nature, yet are we strangers to her. Ceaselessly she speaks to us, and yet betrays not her secrets. End quote. But Goethe knew the other side too. Quote, all human beings are in her, and she is in all human beings. End quote. Just as it is true that we have estranged ourselves from nature, so is it also true that we feel we are within nature and we belong to it. That which lives in us can only be nature's own influence. We must find the way back to nature again. A simple consideration can show us this way. We have, it is true, detached ourselves from nature, but we must have taken something of it over with us into our own being. 
this essence of nature in us, we must seek out, and then we shall find the connection with it once again. Dualism neglects this. It considers the inner being of man as spiritual entity quite alien to nature, and seeks somehow to hitch it onto nature. No wonder it cannot find the connecting link. We can only understand nature outside us when we have first learned to recognize it within us. What within us is akin to nature must be our guide. This points out our path. We shall not speculate about the interaction of nature and spirit, but we shall penetrate the depths of our own being, there to find those elements which we took with us in our flight from nature. Investigation of our own being must bring the solution of the riddle. We must reach a point where we can say to ourselves, Here I am no longer merely I. Here I encounter something which is more than I. I am aware that many who have read thus far will not have found my discussion, quote, scientific in the usual sense. To this, I can only reply that so far I have not been concerned with scientific results of any kind, but with the simple description of what everyone experiences in his own consciousness. A few expressions concerning the attempts to reconcile man's consciousness and the world have been used only for the purpose of clarifying the actual facts. I have, therefore, made no attempt to use the expressions I, spirit, world, nature, in the precise way that is usual in psychology and philosophy, ordinary consciousness is unaware of the sharp distinctions made by the sciences, and up to this point, it has only been a matter of describing the facts of everyday conditions. I am concerned not with how science, so far, has interpreted consciousness, but with how we experience it in daily life. Chapter 3 Thinking in the service of understanding the world. When I see how a billiard ball, when struck, communicates its motion to another ball, I remain entirely without influence on the course of this event which I observe. The direction and velocity of the second ball is determined by the direction and velocity of the first. As long as I do no more than observe, I cannot say anything about the motion of the second ball until it actually moves. The situation alters if I begin to reflect on the content of my observation. The purpose of my reflection is to form concepts of the event. I bring the concept of an elastic ball into connection with certain other concepts of mechanics and take into consideration the special circumstances prevailing in this particular instance. In other words, to attain the action taking place without my doing, I try to add a second action which unfolds in the conceptual sphere. The latter is dependent on me. This is shown by the fact that I could rest content with the observation and forego all search for concepts if I had no need of them. If, however, this need is present, then I am not satisfied until I have brought the concepts ball, elasticity, motion, impact, velocity, etc. into a certain connection, to which the observed process is related in a definite way. As certain as it is that the event takes place independently of me, so certain is it also that the conceptual process cannot take place without my doing it. 
We shall consider later whether this activity of mine is really a product of my own independent being, or whether the modern psychologists are right who say that we cannot think as we will, but that we must think exactly as the thoughts and thought connections present in our consciousness determine. For the time being, we wish merely to establish the fact that we constantly feel compelled to seek for concepts and connections of concepts standing in a certain relation to objects and events given independently of us. Whether this activity is really ours, or whether we accomplish it according to an unalterable necessity, we shall leave aside for the moment. That at first sight it appears to be our activity is beyond doubt. We know with absolute certainty that we are not given the concepts together with the objects. That I myself am the doer may be illusion, but to immediate observation this certainly appears to be the case. The question here is, what do we gain by finding a conceptual counterpart to an event? There is a profound difference between the ways in which, for me, the parts of an event are related to one another before and after the discovery of the corresponding concepts. Mere observation can follow the parts of a given event as they occur, but their connection remains obscure without the help of concepts. I see the first billiard ball move toward the second in a certain direction and with a definite velocity. I must wait for what will happen after the impact. And again, I can follow what happens only with my eyes. Let us assume that at the moment the impact occurs, someone obstructs my view of the field where the event takes place. Then, as mere onlooker, I have no knowledge of what happens afterward. The situation is different if before my view was obstructed, I had discovered the concepts corresponding to the nexus of the events. In that case, I can estimate what occurs even when I am no longer able to observe. An object or event which has only been observed does not of itself reveal anything about its connection with other objects or events. This connection comes to light only when observation combines with thinking. Observation and thinking are the two points of departure for all spiritual striving of man insofar as he is conscious of such striving. What is accomplished by ordinary human reason, as well as by the most complicated scientific investigations, rests on these two fundamental pillars of our spirit. Philosophers have started from various primary antitheses, idea and reality, subject and object, appearance and thing in itself, ego and non-ego, idea and will, concept and matter, force and substance, the conscious and the unconscious, etc., It is easy to show, however, that all these antitheses must be preceded by that of observation and thinking, as the one that is the most important for man. Whatever principle we wish to advance, we must prove that somewhere we have observed it, or express it in the form of a clear thought, which can be rethought by others. Every philosopher who begins to speak about his fundamental principles must make use of the conceptual form, and thereby makes use of thinking. He therefore indirectly admits that for his activity he presupposes thinking. Whether thinking or something else is the main element in the evolution of the world, we shall not decide as yet. But that without thinking the philosopher can gain no knowledge of the evolution of the world is immediately clear. Thinking may play a minor part in the coming into being of world phenomena, 
but thinking certainly plays a major part in the coming into being of a view about them. As regards observation, it is due to our organization that we need it. For us, our thinking about a horse and the object horse are two separate things, but we have access to the object only through observation. As little as we can form a concept of a horse by merely staring at it, just as little are we able to produce a corresponding object by mere thinking. In the sequence of time, observation even precedes thinking. For even thinking, we learn to know first by means of observation. It was essentially a description of an observation when, at the opening of this chapter, we gave an account of how thinking is kindled by an event, and of how it goes beyond what is given without its activity. Whatever enters the circle of our experiences, we first become aware of through observation. The contents of sensation, of perception, of contemplation, of feelings, of acts of will, of the pictures of dreams and fantasy, of representations, of concepts and ideas, of all illusions and hallucinations are given to us through observation. However, as an object of observation, thinking differs essentially from all other objects. The observation of a table or a tree occurs in me as soon as these objects appear within the range of my experience. But my thinking that goes on about these things, I do not observe at the same time. I observe the table. The thinking about the table I carry out, but I do not observe it at the same moment. I would first have to transport myself to a place outside my own activity if, besides observing the table, I wanted also to observe my thinking about the table. Whereas observation of things and events and thinking about them are but ordinary occurrences filling daily life, the observation of thinking itself is a sort of exceptional situation. This fact must be taken into account sufficiently when we come to determine the relation of thinking to all other contents of observation. It is essential to be clear about the fact that when thinking is observed, the same procedure is applied to it as the one we normally apply to the rest of the world content. Only, in ordinary life, we do not apply it to thinking. Someone might object that what I have said here about thinking also holds good for feeling and for all other soul activities. When, for example, we feel pleasure, the feeling is also kindled by an object, and it is this object I observe and not the feeling of pleasure. This objection, however, is based upon an error. Pleasure does not have at all the same relationship to its object as has the concept which thinking builds up. I am absolutely conscious of the fact that the concept of a thing is built up by my activity, whereas pleasure is produced in me by an object in the same way as, for instance, a change is caused in an object by a stone which falls upon it. For observation, a pleasure is given in exactly the same way as that is given which causes it. The same is not true of concepts. I can ask, Why does a particular event arouse in me a feeling of pleasure? But it is never possible to ask, why does an event produce in me a certain number of concepts? That simply has no sense. When I reflect about an event, there is no question of an effect on me. I learn nothing about myself by knowing the concepts which correspond to the change observed in a pane of glass when a stone is thrown against it. 
But I very definitely do learn something about my personality when I know the feeling which a certain event arouses in me. When I say of an observed object, this is a rose, I say absolutely nothing about myself. But when I say of the same thing, it gives me a feeling of pleasure. I characterize not only the rose, but also myself in relation to it. There can, therefore, be no question of comparing thinking and feeling as objects of observation, and the same could easily be shown concerning other activities of the human soul. Unlike thinking, they belong in the same sphere as other observed objects and events. It is characteristic of the nature of thinking that it is an activity directed solely upon the observed object and not upon the thinking personality. This can already be seen from the way we express our thoughts as distinct from the way we express our feelings or acts of will in relation to objects. When I see an object and recognize it as a table, I generally would not say, I'm thinking of a table, but this is a table. But I would say, I am pleased with the table. In the first instance, I am not at all interested in pointing out that I have entered into any relationship with the table. Whereas in the second, it is just this relationship that matters. In saying, I am thinking of a table, I already enter the exceptional situation characterized above, where something is made an object of observation, which is always contained within our soul's activity, only normally it is not made an object of observation. It is characteristic of thinking that the thinker forgets thinking while doing it. What occupies him is not thinking, but the object of thinking which he observes. The first thing, then, that we observe about thinking is that it is the unobserved element in our ordinary life of thought. The reason we do not observe thinking in our daily life of thought is because it depends upon our own activity. What I myself do not bring about enters my field of observation as something objective. I find myself confronted by it as by something that has come about independently of me. It comes to meet me. I must take it as the presupposition of my thinking process. While I reflect on the object, I am occupied with it. My attention is turned to it. This activity is, in fact, thinking contemplation. My attention is directed not to my activity, but to the object of this activity. In other words, While I think, I do not look at my thinking which I produce, but at the object of thinking which I do not produce. I am even in the same position when I let the exceptional situation come about and think about my own thinking. I can never observe my present thinking, but only afterward can I make it an object of thinking the experience I have had of my thinking process. If I wanted to observe my present thinking, I would have to split myself into two persons. One to do the thinking, the other to observe this thinking. This I cannot do. I can only accomplish it in two separate acts. The thinking to be observed is never the one actually being produced, but another one. Whether for this purpose I observe my own earlier thinking, or follow the thinking process of another person, or else, as in the above example of the movements of the billiard balls, presuppose an imaginary thinking process makes no difference. Two things that do not go together are actively producing something and confronting this in contemplation. This is already shown in the first book of Moses. 
The latter represents God as creating the world in the first six days, and only when the world is there is the possibility of contemplating it also present. Quote, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. End quote. So it is also with our thinking. It must first be present before we can observe it. The reason it is impossible for us to observe thinking when it is actually taking place is also the reason it is possible for us to know it more directly and more intimately than any other process in the world. It is just because we ourselves bring it forth that we know the characteristic features of its course, the manner in which the process takes place. What in the other spheres of observation can be found only indirectly, the relevant context and the connection between the individual objects, in the case of thinking, is known to us in an absolutely direct way. Offhand, I do not know why. From my observation, thunder follows lightning. But from the content of the two concepts, I know immediately why my thinking connects the concept of thunder with the concept of lightning. Naturally here, it does not matter whether I have correct concepts of thunder and lightning. The connection between these two concepts I have, that is clear to me, and indeed, this is the case through the concepts themselves. This transparent clarity of the process of thinking is quite independent of our knowledge of the physiological basis of thinking. I speak here of thinking insofar as it presents itself to observation of our spiritual activity. How one material process in my brain causes or influences another while I carry out a line of thought does not come into consideration at all. What I see when I observe thinking is not what process in my brain connects the concepts of lightning with the concept of thunder, but I see what motivates me to bring the two concepts into a particular relationship. My observation of thinking shows me that there is nothing that directs me in my connecting one thought with another except the content of my thoughts. I am not directed by the material processes in my brain. In a less materialistic age than ours, this remark would of course be entirely superfluous. Today, however, when there are people who believe, when we know what matter is, we shall also know how matter thinks. It has to be said that it is possible to speak about thinking without entering the domain of brain physiology at the same time. Today, many people find it difficult to grasp the concept of thinking in its purity. Anyone who wants to contrast the representation of thinking I have here developed with Cabanus's statement, quote, the brain secretes thoughts as the liver does gall or the spittle glands spittle, etc., end quote, simply does not know what I'm talking about. He tries to find thinking by means of a mere process of observation, such as we apply to other objects that make up the content of the world. He cannot find it in this manner because, as I have shown, it eludes normal observation. Whoever cannot overcome materialism lacks the ability to bring about in himself the exceptional situation described above, which brings to his consciousness what remains unconscious in all other spiritual activities. If a person does not have the good will to place himself in this situation, then one can no more speak to him about thinking than one can speak about a color to a person who is blind. However, he must not believe that we consider physiological processes to be thinking. He cannot explain thinking because he simply does not see it. However, one possessing the ability to observe thinking, and with good will every normally organized person has this ability, 
This observation is the most important he can make. For he observes something which he himself brings to existence. He finds himself confronted not by a foreign object to begin with, but by his own activity. He knows how what he observes comes to be. He sees through the connections and the relations. A firm point is attained from which, with well-founded hope, one can seek for the explanation of the rest of the world's phenomena. The feeling of possessing such a firm point caused the founder of modern philosophy, René Descartes, to base the whole of human knowledge on the principle, I think, therefore I am. All other things, all other events are present independent of me. Whether they are there as truth or illusion or dream, I know not. Only one thing do I know with absolute certainty, for I myself bring it to its sure existence, my thinking. Perhaps it also has some other origin as well. Perhaps it comes from God or from elsewhere, but that is present in the sense that I myself bring it forth, of that I am certain. Descartes had, to begin with, no justification for giving his statement any other meaning. He could maintain only that within the whole world content, it is in my thinking that I grasp myself within that activity, which is most essentially my own. What is meant by the attached, therefore I am, has been much debated. It can have a meaning in one sense only. The simplest assertion I can make about something is that it is, that it exists. How this existence can be further defined, I cannot say straight away about anything that comes to meet me. Each thing must first be studied in its relation to others before it can be determined in what sense it can be said to exist. An event that comes to meet me may be a set of perceptions, but it could also be a dream, a hallucination, and so forth. In short, I am unable to say in what sense it exists. I cannot gather this from the event in itself, but I shall learn it when I consider the event in its relation to other things. From this, however, I can, again, learn no more than how it is related to these other things. My search only reaches solid ground if I find an object which exists in a sense which I can derive from the object itself. As thinker, I am such an object, for I give my existence to the definite, self-dependent content of the activity of thinking. Having reached this, I can go on from here and ask, do the other objects exist in the same or in some other sense? When thinking is made the object of observation, the rest of the elements to be observed is added something which usually escapes attention, but the manner in which the other things are approached by man is not altered. One increases the number of observed objects, but not the number of methods of observation. While we are observing the other things, there mingles in the universal process, in which I now include observation, one process which is overlooked. Something different from all other processes is present, but is not noticed. But when I observe my thinking, no such unnoticed element is present. For what now hovers in the background is, again, nothing but thinking. The observed object is qualitatively the same as the activity directed upon it. And that is another characteristic feature of thinking. When we observe it, we do not find ourselves compelled to do so with the help of something qualitatively different, but can remain within the same element. When I weave an object, given independently of me, into my thinking, 
Then I go beyond my observation, and the question is, have I any right to do so? Why do I not simply let the object act upon me? In what way is it possible that my thinking could be related to the object? These are questions which everyone who reflects on his own thought processes must put to himself. They cease to exist when one thinks about thinking. We do not add anything foreign to thinking, and consequently, do not have to justify such an addition. Schelling says, quote, to gain knowledge of nature means to create nature. If these words of the bold-natured philosopher are taken literally, we should have to renounce forever all knowledge of nature. For after all, nature is there already, and in order to create it a second time, one must know the principles according to which it originated. From the nature already in existence, one would have to learn the conditions of its existence in order to apply them to the nature one wanted to create. But this learning, which would have to precede the creating, would however be knowing nature, and would remain this even if, after the learning, no creation took place. Only a nature not yet in existence could be created without knowing it beforehand. What is impossible with regard to nature? creating before knowing, we achieve in the case of thinking. If we wanted to wait and not think until we had first learned to know thinking, then we would never think at all. We would have to plunge straight into thinking in order to be able to, afterward, to know thinking by observing what we ourselves have already done. We ourselves first create an object when we observe thinking. All other objects have been created without our help. Against my sentence, we must think before we can contemplate thinking. Someone might easily set another sentence as being equally valid. We cannot wait with digesting, either, until we have observed the process of digestion. This objection would be similar to the one made by Pascal against Descartes when he maintained that one could also say, I go for a walk, therefore I am. Certainly, I must resolutely get on with digesting before I have studied the physiological process of digestion, but this could only be compared with the contemplation of thinking if, after having digested, I were not to contemplate it with thinking, but were to eat and digest it. It is, after all, not without significance that whereas digestion cannot become the object of digestion, thinking can very well become the object of thinking. This, then, is beyond doubt. In thinking, we are grasping a corner of the universal process where our presence is required if anything is to come about. And after all, this is just the point. The reason things are so enigmatic to me is that I do not participate in their creation. I simply find them there, whereas in the case of thinking, I know how it is made. This is why a more basic starting point than thinking from which to consider all else in the world, does not exist. Here I should mention another widely current error which prevails with regard to thinking. It consists in this, that it is said, thinking, as it is in itself, we never encounter. That thinking which connects the observations we make of our experiences and weaves them into a network of concepts is not at all the same as that thinking which later we extract from the objects we have observed and then make the object of our consideration. What we first unconsciously weave into things is something quite different from what we consciously extract from them afterward. 
To draw such conclusions is not to see that in this way it is impossible to escape from thinking. It is absolutely impossible to come out of thinking if one wants to consider it. When one distinguishes an unconscious thinking from a later conscious thinking, then one must not forget that this distinction is quite external and has nothing to do with thinking as such. I do not in the least alter a thing by considering it with my thinking. I can well imagine that a being with quite differently organized sense organs and with a differently functioning intelligence would have a quite different representation of a horse from mine, but I cannot imagine that my own thinking becomes something different because I observe it. What I observe is what I myself bring about. What my thinking looks like to an intelligence different from mine is not what we are speaking about now. We are speaking about what it looks like to me. In any case, the picture of my thinking in another intelligence cannot be truer than my own picture of it. Only if I were not myself the thinking being, but thinking confronted me as the activity of a being foreign to me, could I say that my picture of thinking appeared in quite a different way, and that I could not know what in itself the thinking of the beings was like. So far, there is not the slightest reason to view my own thinking from a standpoint different from the one applied to other things. After all, I consider the rest of the world by means of thinking. How should I make of my thinking an exception? With this, I consider that I have sufficiently justified making thinking my starting point in my approach to an understanding of the world. When Archimedes had discovered the lever, he thought that with its help he could lift the whole cosmos from its hinges if only he could find a point upon which he could support the instrument. He needed something that was supported by itself that was not carried by anything else. In thinking, we have a principle which exists by means of itself. From this principle, let us attempt to understand the world. Thinking, we can understand through itself. So the question is only whether we can also understand other things through it. I have so far spoken of thinking without considering its vehicle, man's consciousness. Most present-day philosophers would object. Before there can be thinking, there must be consciousness. Therefore, one should begin not from thinking, but from consciousness. No thinking can exist without consciousness. To them I must reply, if I want to have an explanation of what relation exists between thinking and consciousness, I must think about it. In doing so, I presuppose thinking. To this could be said, when the philosopher wants to understand consciousness, he makes use of thinking, and to that extent presupposes it. But in the ordinary course of life, thinking does arise within consciousness, and therefore presupposes this. If this answer were given to the world creator who wished to create thinking, it would no doubt be justified. One naturally cannot let thinking arise without first having brought about consciousness. However, the philosopher is not concerned with the creation of the world, but with the understanding of it. Therefore, he has to find the starting point, not for the creation, but for the understanding of the world. I consider it most extraordinary that a philosopher should be reproached for being concerned first and foremost about the correctness of his principles, rather than turning straight to the objects he wants to understand. The world creator had to know, above all, how to find a vehicle for thinking. 
The philosopher has to find a secure foundation for his understanding of what already exists. How can it help us to start from consciousness and apply thinking to it, if first we do not know whether it is possible to reach any explanation of things by means of thinking? We must first consider thinking quite impartially, without reference to a thinking subject or a thought object. For in subject and object, we already have concepts formed by thinking. There is no denying, before anything else can be understood, thinking must be understood. To deny this is to fail to realize that man is not a first link in creation, but the last. Therefore, for an explanation of the world by means of concepts, one cannot start from the first elements of existence, but must begin with what is nearest to us and is most intimately ours. We cannot at one bound transport ourselves to the beginning of the world in order to begin our investigations there. We must start from the present moment and see whether we can ascend from the latter to the earlier. As long as geology spoke in terms of assumed revolutions in order to explain the present condition of Earth, it groped in darkness. It was only when it made its beginnings from the investigations of those processes at present at work on the Earth and from these drew conclusions about the past that it gained a secure foundation. As long as philosophy assumes all sorts of principles such as atom, motion, matter, will, the unconscious, it will get nowhere. Only when the philosopher recognizes as his absolute first that which came as the absolute last can he reach his goal. But this absolute last in world evolution is thinking. There are people who say, Whether or not our thinking is right in itself cannot be established with certainty, after all. And to this extent, the point of departure is still a doubtful one. It would be just as sensible to raise doubts as to whether in itself a tree is right or wrong. Thinking is a fact, and to speak of the rightness or wrongness of a fact has no sense. At most, I can have doubts as to whether thinking is being rightly applied just as I can doubt whether a certain tree supplies a wood suitable for making tools for a particular purpose. To show to what extent the application of thinking to the world is right or wrong is just the task of this book. I can understand anyone doubting whether we can ascertain anything about the world by means of thinking, but it is incomprehensible to me how anyone can doubt the rightness of thinking in itself. Addition to the revised edition 1918. In the preceding discussion, the significant difference between thinking and all other activities of the soul has been referred to as a fact which reveals itself to a really unprejudiced observation. Unless this unprejudiced observation is achieved, against this discussion, one is tempted to raise objections such as these. When I think about a rose, then, after all, this also is only an expression of a relation of my I to the rose, just as when I feel the beauty of the rose. In the case of thinking, a relation between I and object exists in the same way as in the case of feeling or perceiving. To make this objection is to fail to realize that it is only in the activity of thinking that the I knows itself to be completely at one with that which is active, going into all the ramifications of the activity. In the case of no other soul activity is this completely so. When, for an example, a pleasure is felt, 
a more sensitive observation can quite easily detect to what extent the eye knows itself to be one with something active, and to what extent there is something passive in it, so that the pleasure merely happens to the eye. And this is the case with the other soul activities. But one should not confuse having thought images with the working through of thought by means of thinking. Thought images can arise in the soul in the same way as dreams or vague intimations. This is not thinking. To this could be said, if this is what is meant by thinking, then the element of will is within thinking. And so we have to do not merely with thinking, but also with the will within thinking. However, this would only justify one in saying, real thinking must also be willed. But this has nothing to do with the characterization of thinking as given in this discussion. The nature of thinking may be such that it must necessarily always be willed. The point is that everything that is willed is, while being willed, surveyed by the I as an activity entirely on its own. Indeed, it must be said that just because this is the nature of thinking, it appears to the observer as willed through and through. Anyone who really takes the trouble to understand all that has to be considered in order to reach a judgment about thinking cannot fail to recognize that this sole activity does have the unique character we have described here. A personality highly appreciated as a thinker by the author of this book has objected that it is impossible to speak about thinking as is done here because what one believes one is observing as active thinking only appears to be so. In reality, one is observing only the results of an unconscious activity, which is the foundation of thinking. Only because this unconscious activity is not observed does the illusion arise that the observed thinking exists through itself, just as when in an illumination made by a rapid succession of electric sparks, one believes one is seeing a continuous movement. This objection, too, rests on an inaccurate examination of the facts. To make it means that one has not taken into consideration that it is the I itself, standing within thinking, that observes its own activity. The I would have to stand outside thinking to be deluded as in the case of an illumination with a rapid succession of electric sparks. Indeed, one could say, to make such a comparison is to deceive oneself forcibly, like someone who, seeing a moving light, insisted that it was being freshly lit by an unknown hand at every point where it appeared. No, whoever wants to see in thinking anything other than a surveyable activity brought about within the eye must first make himself blind to the plain facts that there are there for the seeing in order to be able to set up a hypothetical activity as the basis of thinking. He who does not so blind himself cannot fail to recognize that everything he thinks into, thinking in this manner, takes him away from the essence of thinking. Unprejudiced observation shows that nothing belongs to the thinking's own nature that is not found in thinking itself. If one leaves the realm of thinking, one cannot come to what causes it. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes.
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and we'll have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.